0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host Neil McRobert and this is the last author interview of 2021. Thankfully it's an excellent one. Our guest is AJ West, journalist, ex-broadcaster, contestant on the reality tv show Big Brother and author of The Spirit Engineer, one of my favourite books of the year. The novel tells a strange tale of science and spiritualism in early 20th century Belfast, in the years bracketed by the sinking of the Titanic and the outbreak of war. Now I've read a lot of books concerned with this topic, with mediums and spirits and séances in this period, so I went in expecting familiar rehashed themes. How Wrong I Was, it reads like Conan Doyle on crack, like if Dickens took up BDSM, It's grotesque, vicious and darkly comic. But it also has that frisson of old rooms and and overstuffed armchairs that makes it perfect for cosy Christmas reading, just with a kink. AJ and I talk about many things, from the real historical details behind the story to the perverse link between sex and seances, and we discuss the rare instance of a truly unlikable male protagonist. I'm delighted to end on such a high note, though I must apologise for the croakiness of my voice throughout this interview. What was suspected Covid turned out to be just too much talking. I sound like a Budweiser frog at parts. So come with me to Belfast in 1913. Ships have sunk, war is rising and the spirits are clamouring for attention. Let's talk scared. Hello AJ. Finally we we meet. Welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you at last. At last, yeah. So well to explain, some listeners will know I, I was supposed to be at the UK Ghost Story Festival speaking to AJ on stage, but an unexpected snowstorm and suspected COVID on my behalf kept me away. And and I felt terrible to let you down, mate. So I'm I'm especially grateful that you've agreed to have this conversation in absentia, so to speak.
1: No, no, it's my pleasure. And actually, in a funny way, I think it's worked out maybe for the best because, you know, those um, scenarios where you're sitting in front of an audience and like you say, there's been a snowstorm and um, I was just coming off the back of my UK tour. And I feel kind of more relaxed and fresh
0: headed anyway to have this conversation. So I'm kind of pleased. Okay, good. That makes both of us. So the conversation in question is about your debut novel, The Spirit Engineer which it came out in October to to pretty serious acclaim. And and in my opinion, it's a perfect winter read. It's kind of ghostly and and truly ghastly, but also in a weird way, kind of cozy. Of all the books I've read so far on this show, I can't think of many that have prompted quite so many questions. (laughs) So rather than kind of me waffling on, let's get into it and let's try and deal with as many questions as we can. Can you start us off? with an introduction to the spirit engineer.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, the spirit engineer is based on a fascinating and rather mysterious true story of William Jackson Crawford, who was a professor of engineering in turn of the century Belfast. And he studied a spiritual medium called Kathleen Golliger, who was 16 when he met her. Um, For a period of six years, up to 1920, And then after publishing three books and really spearheading um, spiritualist research from a scientific point of view, his body was then discovered on picky rocks in Bangor in Northern Ireland, and uh, he'd taken potassium cyanide and committed suicide. And Harry Houdini, which is where I discovered the story, actually, writes in his memoir, A Magician Among the Spirits, that William must have discovered that he had been duped By Kathleen for all of those years. Uh, Whereas Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the doyen of the spiritualist movement, as well as, of course, a a very famous author, um, he really held William's experiments uh, in very high regard and said, no, no, this was his last greatest experiment. And he clearly just wanted to pass to Summerland, as he called it, or Beyond the Divide. So the story is based on that, and it's really my telling of that story, having
0: researched it for two years. Indeed, and I have to start with a confession. So at no point in reading this book did I have any idea that the events of your story are based on real people or real events. It was only when I got to the afterword that I realised it wasn't pure fiction. Is Um, that right? That's fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea. So... It, well, well, we'll get to the effect that I had on my reading in, in a bit. Let's start with just a question about you, first of all. But well, You are a journalist and a broadcaster, and you've been on British TV a lot. And I don't know whether you've met Tina Baker, who wrote Call Me Mommy, but <laughs> you, you know, she was also um, from a similar sort of TV background. So I'm kind of collecting people who've made that jump now. Uh, you were even on the TV show Big Brother. and And don't worry, I'm not turning this into some kind of celebrity profile. But... It's interesting, nothing in that bio gives any indication that you would turn to fiction with a gothic novel about a niche figure from history. So to start off, I suppose, do you have a general interest in the dark, spookier side of things that this was your chance to pursue?
1: It is a pretty weird start, isn't it, for a historical gothic historical fiction novelist. I was a journalist. I'm not a journalist anymore. I left the BBC... And yes, as you say, ended up on uh, on Big Brother of all places. And the funny thing was actually spending eight weeks in that house, uh, watching people, observing human behaviour, and also the legacy that it left in my life. I, I went through a really rough time afterwards. Was very depressed actually, and very frightened about my future and it really tested my own principles and I kind of lost track of who I was for a couple of years after that program and that's while I was writing this book so that's helped to inform it but as far as my um, interest absolutely I mean I've uh, my mum tells me that there was a book and I, I can never remember I don't think it was an Aesop's fable anyway my favorite book when I was a kid was really dark And my mum used to hate reading it to me when I was um, a kid at bedtimes, but I demanded she read this book every single night. And I wish she could remember what the name of the book was because I have no idea, (laughs) but she said it was something to do with a forest and a blue jay. So I don't know if you're any listener, any listeners can help me out with that. But so I obviously did have a, uh, an early love for dark stories and mysterious stories. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of, M.R. James and E.F. Benson and Arthur Macken and, you know, the greats. So um, it was very natural for me to to write uh, a gothic historical story. That being said, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to. I, I had been waiting for a story, I suppose, to really inspire me to write a novel. I wondered whether I ever would. And then, as I say, when I was reading Harry Houdini's memoirs and this particular story jumped out at me when I was working in Belfast in Northern Ireland and he mentioned William Jackson Crawford. I just thought this is it, this is the story, I've got to write this as a novel and if I can't then I'm not a novelist because it's such an amazing story. If you can't write this into a book then frankly you're not a writer.
0: Yeah that's a fair enough point but it's about how you do it and and, and you do it with such delicious grotesque black comedy which I massively enjoyed. This book is very funny until it isn't, if that, if that makes sense. Because I thought it was fiction, as I was reading it, I was kind of coming up with, I've read it on Kindle, and I was kind of highlighting passages and, and writing little notes to kind of prompt my questions uh, down the line. And I was coming up with these questions about what I thought were your choices. Like, you know, like why set this story in Belfast at such a tumultuous period? And, and why set it so close to the sinking of the Titanic, which is this kind of societal grief? And then I realised, oh, they aren't choices. That's an historical kind of, you know, actuality. And as a debut novelist, is that framework of preordained historical fact is that a blessing or is it a curse is it supportive or restrictive
1: oh it's a blessing because um you know i don't know whether you were making notes saying this is a really interesting choice and very much uh, yeah and and, and and it's nice really to have a gothic historical um novel that's not set in um smoggy smoky london um mm. Uh, or the moors, the Yorkshire moors, or something. You know, it, it's a, it's a it's an unusual setting for a gothic historical novel, and um, so the the reality gave me that. I would love to be able to say that I would have had the creative uh, imagination to have set it in Belfast after the sinking of the Titanic, had it not actually happened there. But I don't think I would. I don't think I would have actually been able to be so so confident actually as to set a book somewhere that that is riven with its own. And political and cultural and theological complexities, uh, as as Northern Ireland or Ireland was at the time. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, without a doubt, having having a true story to research also really helped me to feel like I was sitting inside the story while I was writing it. To to spend two years in archives um in in England and Northern Ireland and to meet the descendants of the two families the two main families in the book to just immerse myself in that world allowed me as a debut novelist I think to be much more confident in my writing even though it also posed some difficult questions.
0: What was it like to meet the descendants of these people were they receptive to what you were doing?
1: It was nerve-wracking I mean I'd set up a, a website Um, as you say, at ajwestauthor.com. And I was contacted via that website by the families, the two families, the Golligers and the Crawfords, although that's not their name anymore. And on both occasions, when these emails came in, I was just completely floored because I never imagined when I embarked on this writing journey that I would be talking to the descendants of these two extraordinary people. Um, And even more so than that, to speak to the granddaughter of the spiritual medium who was looked after cared for you know by this woman i was writing about that was thrilling but it was also kind of daunting because you want to make sure you're doing justice to someone who's still in living memory and i didn't realize mm-hmm. that she was so that was yeah it was a lot of pressure but fortunately um both william's descendants and kathleen's descendants um, approached the project with nothing nothing but enthusiasm and support for me as a writer and really weren't too concerned about how I presented the legacy of of their family members. Um, that obviously would have been tough, but I was able to reassure them that, you know, even though they weren't going to come out of the book uh, entirely squeaky clean, uh, I was going to, you know, treat the story with with due respect.
0: Well, it's an interesting one, that, because it's when you said living memory, I suddenly thought, oh, God, yeah, because we have this thing, don't we, where if people fall from living memory, they, they become almost indivisible from fictional characters, really, in terms of how we treat them and how we conceive of them. You know, we're just like, oh, we throw what you want because they're, they're kind of in the past and they have no feelings anymore. But the minute that you have someone who is alive who remembers this person, that's a very different relationship with the character. I can imagine well, that would change the project a little bit.
1: Yeah, it did. It really informed my writing of Kathleen. And I think again, you know, as a debut novelist, I was I was fretting a little bit about how do I write this mercurial young woman or girl, Kathleen Golliger. How do I write her as a a guy in his thirties, 120 years later? and do that justice. There's a whole conversation going on at the moment about writers, um, mm-hmm. creating characters that don't reflect their own lived experience. And, uh, there's a history of men, not always writing female characters with, with a great deal of depth, um, which is another conversation, but I felt, you know, I, that, that was all kind of very much in my mind. Um, and meeting Kathleen's granddaughter was very helpful because she was able to confirm for me something that was always my suspicion, which was that, Um, Her grandmother was a self-effacing woman. She was not a woman who sought out the spotlight. She was not a particularly guileful character. She was very calm, very quiet, very generous and very principled. And that it was useful because when you're reading William's research and it's available for anyone who wants to buy it on Amazon, you can read his essays and his, his reports and his investigations. Um, you can 't help but read it and come to the same conclusion Harry Houdini did, which is this this woman is a con artist really um or at least i can't I know there will be people listening who maybe have a belief in in uh spiritual mediumship that i don't and 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 that's 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 obviously you know we all come to our own personal conclusions but i i I read it and i thought gosh this um this young woman must have been very precocious and frankly, must have been very dishonest. But I, I it gave me a much more nuanced understanding of perhaps why this young woman was um, a spiritual medium at a time when young women really didn't have much agency and it gave her a, an opportunity, I'm sure, to kind of hold court with her social superiors, so-called.
0: Um, so, mm-hmm. it,
1: yeah, it, it gave me a really, um, it gave me a, a much more textured understanding of who she was.
0: I mean, also, she's of, of her time as well, and a, a, a moment ago, in a, a few answers back, you mentioned that it was it was nice to write a, a, a gothic novel that wasn't in the, the fog of London, you know, and I've read a fair amount about the spiritualist movement over the years, nowhere near as much as you, obviously, but enough to know that it is framed as very London-centric. I mean, you've got the whole North American Fox sisters thing, but but in 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 britain it was very london centric um and it's interesting then that your story is set in northern ireland in a particularly disturbed period so as we've mentioned the titanic sank in 1912 you had war brewing on the continent the easter rising is on the horizon and all the all the issues that that brought for the next however many decades and and there is this one line that I'd, I'd like to quote I've quite a few quotes this this week actually but there's one line where where William says, I had a premonition that Ulster would soon be manufacturing ghosts as fast as rivets. How insignificant the loss of the doomed Titanic would seem then. And this idea of Belfast as an already haunted place in which Kathleen is plying her trade. I just wonder whether you even know, but did that kind of whole context lend northern irish spiritualism its own tone or its own experience or was it distinct in some way
1: yes i think it was and crikey where do you begin with uh, northern ireland in that period i mean you've just kind of given <laughs> a summary of it but yeah i mean on top of everything you mentioned you've also obviously got a deeply religious and divided uh, society there where, you know, for instance, Catholics had just basically been effectively banned from from working in most of the heavy industry in the city. So they weren't allowed to work at the shipyard. So you had um, even greater unemployment than you had already. And of course, that caused, you know, huge uh, friction um, in in society. And in fact, on the exact road where the Golicers lived and they carried out their seances, the Ormo Road, you had... Um, two communities that had lived side by side on that road and and at this point actually um you you see catholic families moving away from that particular road in that exact area to um, their own enclaves if you like and so so we are in a position where at this exact point belfast is starting to tear into pieces in a way that you know is still causing huge social issues today and indeed um a guy called Fournier was brought in after William's death to continue investigating Kathleen Golliger. He came to the conclusion that she was lifting a stool with her foot, um, by the way, and uh, written into his notes during his investigation are the claps and bangs of gunfire going on um, in the streets outside where they're carrying out the investigations. So, it, it really, and that was one of the difficult things for me, I suppose, as a writer, was to try and get the balance right. Because I, I thought I'm not writing a political history of Northern Ireland; people have done that far better than I ever could. Um, I am writing a mysterious ghost story with a cracking twist and more to say. But when there's so much history going on in one place, it's it is a challenge to try and focus in on on the actual plot sometimes <laughs> and not get. Diverted, and I, I don't mind admitting that I cut out some sixty thousand words from the original manuscript to get it to the book we see today. And um, part of part of that process was really stripping out some of the research I'd carried out
0: into historical context. Speaking of historical moments and, and and context in that in that regard, even though this novel is set in the Edwardian period, it has a real residue of Victorianism to it. Um some of the characters, indeed, feel quite Dickensian, kind of, you know, almost grotesque and larger than life, which is why I was so astounded to find out that they were real figures. Um, but but now we're on character. No one is more larger than life than the protagonist, William. And I, I say protagonist because I don't think there is any way we can say hero, because to me, the man is an utter arse. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's he's conceited, he's resentful, he's chauvinistic, he's arrogant, but also very cowardly. Or have I got him wrong? No, I don't
1: think I don't think you've got him wrong. I mean, I would say I, I often find myself um sticking up for William a bit because you know the intention that I had was that the reader would have a difficult re- reading relationship with the narrator William Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um it was now I now I, I didn't realise at the time actually what a uh, brave and utterly reckless creative decision that was because <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't actually aware that most readers these days come to their fiction hoping and expecting to become best mates with with the lead mm-hmm. character because that's never what I've looked for I I love my Dorian Gray and Jekyll and Hyde and you know um <clears throat> all sorts of less obvious characters actually that aren't particularly likable and that is why that's why I love them, you know, and it goes back to being a kid again. I would always watch the pantomimes and I would, I'd be totally on the side of the baddie. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's just what gives me my kind of creative thrill. But, uh, no, I you know, William is not meant to be happy, cosy company. He's meant to challenge the reader. Um, but he is also at the same time fallible and aware of his own inadequacy. He says very early on that he's an ad- inadequate husband and father, Um, he, he mourns his own failings and his own weaknesses more than I think, and criticizes them more necessarily than he, he does other characters. Um, And it was interesting for me, I think I read a lot of historical fiction and, and it's great at the moment. There's so much historical fiction being written, um, about, uh, you know, female characters overcoming the patriarchy or, uh, challenging toxic masculinity and chauvinism in their day. And, um, I find that fascinating, but sometimes I feel as though the, the male behavior that's represented isn't, isn't always, uh, understood fully, um, as a reader by me, you know, I want to, I want to work out why is the guy behaving like this? Why is Mm -hmm. he toxic? Why is he aggressive? Why is he a chauvinist? And, um, so I found that as a a really interesting journey for me to go on, um, putting myself in the head of William Jackson Crawford, you know, guys in those days, if they had uh, mental illness and, and my personal belief and all the evidence would, would show that William Jackson Crawford in real life did, did suffer uh, mental illness. Um, it wasn't, It wasn't shown any sympathy. It wasn't diagnosed. It wasn't talked about. Um, If you felt inadequate as a man, that you weren't equal to the expectations of society, you weren't really able to express that stiff upper lip and the rest of it. Um, If you if you felt that you were bad in bed or a bad dad or an ugly guy or weak or you weren't as clever or you weren't getting the opportunities you needed in life to fulfill your ambition. It was a very unsympathetic world that you were met with. And I think that led to and, and I think a lot of maybe that maybe some of the guys listening, I, I can I can see why if I lived in that world, it would have made me a much um, less kind and understanding uh, and balanced guy. And that's saying something, because, as I say, you know, when I was writing this book after I did that TV show, I really did lose sight, I think, a little bit of who who I who I want to be as a guy. And and so writing William I I I hope he's got some nuance there so that it makes people just wonder, well, look, he is a toxic character, he's definitely an anti-hero. But it but but is that is that entirely his fault or is or is he a product of the world he's existing in?
0: Right, there's so much to unpack from that. I'm trying to marshal my thoughts now to think which questions to actually in the right order because you've kind of touched on lots of things I was going to talk about. So for a start, I was going to ask about, you know, how do you, as a debut writer, how do you keep the faith that you aren't losing your reader um, by not making the character likable? I personally think that William Crawford may be my favourite character of any book I've read this year. Wow. I didn't like the man at all, but I cannot remember a character it was more fun to read about than him. Um, I would, I would kind of liken it in a weird way. And I hope you don't mind this comparison to the main character in the film, Wolf of Wall Street, uh-huh. who is somebody who is, to me, odious, but never anything other than completely engaging and and great fun to watch go about his day. You know, that's how it felt for me. So that's that's point one. That's not a question. That's a statement. Um, secondly, you just described him as an antihero. Do you think it's too far to go to call him the villain of the novel
1: I think that is a decision the reader has to come to and that's not a cop-out that's precisely what I wanted Mm. I mean I don't know about you but I I have an issue with books that take you on you know take you with them for 300 pages and then at the end the author kind of goes I don't know I don't know what happens. You decide. Mm-hmm. I, I do like books to actually give me a conclusion and to answer the questions that have been posed, um, as in the plot twists and and you know the mysteries. However, I do think the books that I love have left me with things to think about and to to, to mull over. And so I wanted to make sure my my book did that too. And I think one of the one of the big questions that I hope readers will have I'm trying to say this without causing any spoilers but I think one of the big questions that I hope readers will have is in this particular situation it's clear that there is abuse but is there one perpetrator of that abuse or in fact uh, is there more than one is is the abuser also the victim and yeah, I don't know about you, but my experience in real life is that that's very often the case. Is that you know people who are capable of extraordinary cruelty or selfishness or meanness are also themselves uh, suffering, and um, and and so yeah, that's that's kind of what I wanted to write into William as a character. And my hope there is, and I am going to be very cheesy now, but my hope there is that the reader will be haunted by the characters in the novel for some
0: time after reading it. Well, I'm still thinking about him anyway. The reason I spent the anti-hero thing as opposed to villain is because I've been kind of repeating this thing for a while now about um, the idea of unlikable female characters. There's an entire podcast called that because it, it's become such a, a problematic trope, you know. And, and it seems to me that it's really quite rare in contemporary fiction to meet a male protagonist who is actively unlikable because there's plenty of female protagonists who are in in quotation marks unlikable because we've prescribed what likable female behavior is in such a way that it's very easy to be unlikable because the parameters are so narrow um whereas with male characters if you're not likable you're an anti-hero you're problematic you're challenging you're dark you're you know all these things and I was basically refreshed that as far as I'm concerned, you wrote a character who isn't an anti-hero. He's just someone I don't like. And and that was just it was great fun to not have that um that diluting of his flaws in, in a way. So I completely get what you're saying about he has reasons that you know there is rationale behind his behaviour. But I I almost don't want to apply that because I just like the fact that he wasn't likable.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I <clears throat> I mean I I can't pretend that I set out to write a such an unusual character. I think he just he just he just had to be. He just was, you know, mm. for me to write this story he was what he was and deeply flawed and as you say chauvinistic, um arrogant. I kind of got a sense when I was reading his uh, articles that he wrote for Light magazine and his books I didn't get the sense that he was an awful human being as such, but I got the sense that he was, he was quite obnoxious and, you know, uh, over uh, perhaps and, and very um, uh, socially ambitious as well. I I got, just got the sense that here is a man who's trying to just desperate to prove himself and maybe has lost sight of reality in that desperation. And I, I just found that really, really interesting but, you know, if uh, if he's uh, a character who challenges the reader and m- makes the reader feel uncomfortable as as I felt uncomfortable reading the true story and reading the, the experiments that he carried out on this young woman, um, then I, mission accomplished. You know, and I think when you were saying earlier about the humor and then the humor kind of um, t- twisting, um, it's 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 the lack of it's lack of awareness that we're all capable of. I suppose that when we really get into something and we're intoxicated by something obsession, we're capable of the most extraordinary stupidity and cruelty. And he says, uh, about halfway through the book, he's, he's, you know, tied the spiritual medium up and she's in an extremely vulnerable situation. And he says to his, Uh, adoring audience behold ladies and gentlemen the most powerful woman you've ever seen and Mm. i just i wrote that line uh with real anger actually at him (laughs) you know because i thought that kind of sums it up doesn't it is here is a guy who's tied up a vulnerable young woman and is now and is now proclaiming her on her behalf while she's gagged in fact to be powerful
0: yes but you you've mentioned in this conversation and I've seen in interviews elsewhere, you've mentioned, you've said phrases like when you came out of Big Brother that you, you know, you lost yourself, you didn't like who you were becoming. I've seen you reference these things. Can I ask, is there some catharsis in this? Are are you dealing with your own sort of memory or, 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 troubled center of that time in your life? Is it because this book is all about William losing who he is or flailing around for some kind of self surety. Does it, is it in some ways an unconscious reflection of what you were going through?
1: Yeah, I've spoken quite openly about it. When I left uh, big brother, I entered into a world where I was being told that I should want to be certain things or I should place value in certain things and I should really kind of sell my soul to pursue that, you know, to be dishonest about my private life um, when I'm doing interviews for newspapers to try and make sure that they print it, um, to go to events with with people I didn't particularly like, but walk around pretending I loved them because that's what you have to do. And, you know, all of these different things, it, it really um, ripped me up a little bit and, and and put me in a very, very difficult place where I did lose a sense of who i was and i made decisions that i regret and 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 behaved in ways that i that i regret and i guess that what it gave me was um some understanding and some empathy for how william jackson crawford became intoxicated by his by his own aspirations and his own ambitions and this this crazy thing that he was pursuing and how maybe that led to him losing sight of his own principles and his own morality. And and Mm. that is very much interwoven through the book. You know, we we have a story that on the face of it is a ghost story with a cracking twist at the end. But really for me, it's the story of a man chasing something impossible and really... Destroying
0: himself in the process. Yes, it's it's, it's a story of to me of, of a man's collapsing identity because he seems to always be in search for um, safe grounds for for surety and it, what what begins as complete faith in the rational because he's an engineer and b- by default therefore a rejection of the ephemeral over the course of the novel, switches into a complete desire to believe in the opposite, but he never feels like he's sure about anything in, in a healthy way.
1: Well, no, I don't think... I, I mean, William isn't healthy. He's not mentally healthy. Um, and even at the beginning of the novel, it, what he has is the, the seeds of his own madness and his own destruction are there. And isn't that something we can all as human beings have some understanding of I think if we're honest there are things within us all that we fear we know these monsters lurk within ourselves and Mm -hmm. the job of any you know civilized rational decent human being is to acknowledge you know the bad sides as well as the good sides of our own personalities and control them and make sure that we're in charge and as soon as you lose lose track of that and as soon as you lose your grip on the uh, more dangerous or negative parts of yourself then that's a very very frightening and um, risky place to be.
0: Uh, Yeah and we see William go through this process and 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 it it, things become more extreme and and, and darker and this there are sort of two two key things in the novel for me that that push him not beyond the pale, but into truly problematic kind of areas. And and the first is when he denies his son in, in many ways. I'll leave that open because there's a number of ways that that happens that could spoil things. And then there's also, as you've mentioned previously, this thing about the way he exploits and, and potentially abuses these women, his wife and Kathleen, the medium in particular. And well, first of all, I wonder, have you read, in your research, Kate summerscales the haunting of Alma Fielding. I, this is terrible, isn't it? No, I haven't. No, it's, it's fine. It only came out like last year, but I interviewed her basically. And Kate summerscale wrote the Confessions of Mister Witcher, which was massive. Um, it's like episode five of this show or something like that. And
1: you don't need I, you don't need to tell me that that book that book is one of my favourite books ever written and
0: Mister Witcher. Absolutely. Oh wow! Right. Okay. Well. Well, she wrote The Horns of Alma Fielding in exactly the same way, that kind of narrative nonfiction. And it's about Nandor, Fodor and Alma Fielding and this, this, this spiritual experimentation that is just like that between William and Kathleen, um, but it's in a much more reciprocal way. But there is the same emergence of this weird sexual undercurrent and I asked Kate about it and and she gave me all sorts of interested answers. But it, there is that, yeah, that same sexual thing that happens. And that comes massively to the fore in your book. And it starts with almost kind of comic double entendre. And then the, even the first time he ties these women up to stop them, to check that they're not faking this. It's quite comedic. He kind of wiggles his moustache and, and stuff. But it gets much darker as it goes on. There's this whole psychosexual Agenda that that seeps into William's behaviour. Um, there's a, there's a lot made of Kathleen's genitalia, where these phantom ectoplasmic limbs emerge from. And and to get across how you how you make this so creepy, I'd like to just read one short quote. This is William talking about these ectoplasmic eruptions from from Kathleen's body, and he says, "How I had thrilled to touch." the plasmic rod's reptilian skin for the first time, catching it tongue-like between her parted legs to follow it upwards slowly, fingertips brushing across cool, scaly skin to its clammy origin. It's really disturbing where it goes to and and this, this clear sense of William's growing sexual thrill at his power over these women. Well, here's my question. On your website, you give your own thoughts on the real William and you say that though you can't know, you don't think he was overtly an abuser or a pervert. If that's the case, why did you make that aspect of the seances so overt?
1: I, I mean, I can never know. I, 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 slightly take my lead from the own, the families, Kathleen Golliger's family and, and also uh, William Crawford's families, that they, they're, they're absolutely adamant that they don't believe that there was any sexual element to the experiments. Other academics over the years who have written about this little known case have come to the conclusion that William's motive was sexual. I find some evidence that he found titillation in the experiments, but I don't think it was his Personally, I don't think it was his primary motive. I think if he wanted to abuse <clears throat> women, uh, he could have done so in Belfast at that time in myriad other ways In, in, in that would have been far less exposing to him. I do, however, think that he became obsessed with this beguiling young woman and that that was part of his experiments. When he felt the need to investigate Kathleen's body to make sure that she wasn't hiding anything. He enlisted a female nurse or his wife to do that for him. Also he says and but however there are there are there are a couple of mentions in his private notes where he does say that he touches Kathleen's breast when the spirits arrive and when the, um, uh, the uh, apparitions are taking place and that her breast hardens and that that's probably the um, ectoplasmic uh, material building inside her body. In real life, it was very, very creepy. Um, I think the man was mentally unhinged and I do think that his uh, sexuality played a part in that. But I think it was all—it was part of a broader scientific and egotistical excitement that the man had. But in my in my book, as as a novelist, I wanted to write a repressed character, a sexually repressed character, and I was looking for. I mean, as a novelist, as you know, as everyone will know, you know, the the, the trick to writing a novel is finding out characters motivations. And so William has more than one motivation, but certainly. I thought one of them needs to be the fact that he feels sexually inadequate. It's not a spoiler to say this is a man who is very aware that he does not um, uh, sexually satisfy his wife. And. At the same time, has a great, you know, an awful lot of confused feelings about his mum, his mother, so, I mean, all of this wound together creates a character that I think is is you, you, was inevitably going to have sexual repression, and I, I quite enjoyed writing those passages, such as the one you just mm-hmm. read out, where he's quite clearly he's quite clearly talking about a penis or <laughs> you know or genitals in some other way. Um, when even I don't think even he realizes he is, and that is the point about William as a character, it, you know. Th- The trick I wanted to play on the reader, I suppose, is all the way through to think, does he even know? Does he like, does he even believe
0: what he's saying? Well, it's funny you say that because you kind of did a double trick on me because I became so obsessed by William's sexual obsession. (laughs) that that by the end, I couldn't work out whether I was seeing things in your prose or not. So at one point, for example, he sneakily unlocks the maid's door. Uh, and, and to paraphrase, he kind of ever so gently enters and pushes against the sensitive mechanism within. And I was like, I was worried that I developed my own pathological sexualising of everything that happens in the book. I was like, it, it, is this him? Um, so yeah, you, you do play that trick on me very well. But to the extent I didn't know what I thought about it. Making up your own jokes? No,
1: i Do you know what? It's it's actually. Um, I don't know. I find it. I find it genuinely uh, quite flattering. To hear you say that, because I I specifically remember where I was in the moment I wrote that exact sequence where he's pushing the key into the lock and then feeling for the sensitive pins inside Mm. it. Um, And he's got some kind of sticky grease on on this uh, (laughs) blank that he's putting into the keyhole. And that was absolutely deliberate. Yeah, that was basically oh, for that was that was foreplay. I was writing a kind of a, a clumsy approximation for for a guy's understanding of what foreplay might be. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, you know, particularly as a guy who wasn't particularly good at it, but he, he absolutely so. So the book is all the way all the way through. You know, you, there, there's um, definitely hidden meaning in pretty much every line in the book. I would say actually, because mm-hmm. I, I I obsessed over every line in that book. I mean, I must have written each line in it at, at, at least 10 times. So, so that I can honestly say there isn't a line in the book where I haven't thought about it and made sure that it is telling all stories
0: at once. Yeah, you can see that craft at work, though, because there's, there's an awful lot of foreshadowing. Really, Everything has got numerous meanings. To the, even, even the extent that right at the start, William kind of in an aside talks but before anything has happened that's uncanny. William talks about how in uh, their last house, it had been quite a noisy house, things breaking and things going wrong before the, even any hint of a haunting. And and that then comes back to have a, a whole nother layer of meaning when you realize what's really going on and stuff. So yeah, it's all, yeah. it's all there.
1: My favorite, my favorite sequence in the book comes, I don't know, about halfway through. And uh, if someone were to suffer my book a second time, then the conversation that the characters are having at that point takes on an entirely new meaning. You understand then, aha, they weren't, they weren't talking about what I thought they were talking Mm -hmm. about. Now I understand what they really, what they really meant. And I, uh, I just love that. I, I love, I love being tricked like that as a reader mm-hmm. and so I, it took a lot of time and planning but I just wanted to try my best to see if I could do it too, you know. So it's, it's, it's honestly it's really, uh, it's just really cool to, to hear uh, someone such as yourself who's read it obviously with such thought and and that, you know, those
0: things have, have worked. Well there's, I mean I think, I'm trying to do this in a way that's spoiler free but I think if you're talking about the letter and how the letter can be read, then when I When we get to the end of the book and you certain things are revealed, I had a very similar reaction that I had to the Sixth Sense, where the first time you watch the Sixth Sense, you're like, "Well, you know what? I'm going to say if you haven't seen the Sixth Sense yet, then you've had like 20 years. So, (laughs) like, basically,
1: listening to this podcast, yeah,
0: Bruce Willis is dead, right? So when you find out that that has happened in that film, um, you kind of go, "Fuck off! No way! It's a cheat." because he was sat at the table with his wife having a conversation you think it's impossible it can't And then you go back and watch it and you're like oh no no they did it so cleverly that it it does work but you you don't believe it works until you're proved that it works and there's a certain thing with a letter in this in this in your book that was I had the same reaction I thought hang on no that's a cheat and then when I read it and thought about it no it it does work I think the first time I had that experience and uh, I
1: remember just thinking oh my gosh that's the Best thing I've ever seen was uh, was Fight Club, so mm. it has a kind of similar trick in it, and i uh, I wasn't actually referring to the letter. I was referring to a séance scene, and okay. um, it's when stuff starts to go a bit weird and there's two characters have a very brief conversation and the first time you read it it will mean one thing and then the second time you read it once you work out the twist it will mean, yeah it will mean something entirely different
0: yeah i get that now yeah yeah i remember speaking of twists actually the end of this book hinges on a on a huge one and we are not going to spoil it i mean um I mean, I I should probably get on a T-shirt, to be honest, by now, where I say, like, I won't spoil it, I promise. Um, The twist in your book is a good chance for me to address a question that someone posted to me on Twitter, actually, a, a general question. And this person asked me why so much horror fiction or gothic fiction, whatever, Why so much of it includes a twist compared to previous decades? got to say, from the sheer number of times I say we won't spoil the twist on this show, I think that person is right. So I'm passing the question to you, basically. As someone who's written a novel with a killer twist recently, what do you think is going on? Why why has has, has horror and gothic become so cleverly plotted?
1: Uh, Well, there's a bit of a twist at the end of your question. I didn't think you were going to pose it that way. (laughs) Um, Why uh is it i think if you're writing historical fiction or gothic fiction then it's not always an easy read and so maybe there's an expectation that you need to give people a really hot payoff for the energy that you know to pull people through you want to kind of entice them saying there's going to be there's going to be a banger of a twist coming so it's it's kind of worth the investment i i don't know i mean you know on a personal front it's got a twist in it i i loved um Sarah Waters' Affinity, it was quite an mm-hmm. inspiration for me for this book and Fingersmith as well. And the first novel I read that gave me, I don't know, just a sense of the, the sheer amazement, I suppose, and, and joy of reading was actually uh, Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy, which does not have a twist in it as such, but it has an absolute smacker Um, again, people have had long enough to read that book, so I hope it's okay (laughs) for me to say, but you know, the son who's a bit strange all the way through ends up hanging himself and the two other siblings and Jude discovers them. Um, and when I read that, I, the the response that I had was so visceral. I, I remember thinking if I, if I can ever give someone that kind of response in my writing and I don't think I have yet by the way I hope to in my future books but if it's something so powerful then then you've really got something um because life real life is filled with shocking twists and horrible as well as joyous surprises and I think maybe as a reader that's that's why it touches us so deeply because actually it, it kind of speaks to reality that we are all ultimately going through life excited by and also terrified by what might be round the corner and how many times in life do we suddenly realize that that person we thought was a friend was actually a foe or that the job we thought we were going to love turns out to be terrible or we go for a drive to the shops and before we know it you know we've we've driven into a bollard or, or something worse heaven forfend you know life is filled with danger and risk and shock and and so why shouldn't that be in in great writing but <sighs> Um there is also a more mercenary element to it. And that's because you want to you want to give a reader a reason to tell their friend to read it. Hmm. Yeah. You'll never guess yeah, the you'll never guess the twist. It's so much easier for someone to say with enthusiasm than it's really spooky and it's got a really interesting um uh, character arc is is not quite so beguiling as if you read this book i guarantee you won't know what's happening till the end is it is it actually a really it's, i mean you know it's it's not really it wasn't the reason for my approach but i'm sure that's why publishers encourage twists
0: well i didn't guess it and i i'm pretty good at twists but recently i've had i've had a few on the bounce where i just did not see what was coming but s- speaking of of your twist very vaguely um i I'm assuming that it isn't something you got from the, from the historical record. Um and, and basically, without talking about what it is, it, was it more of a sense that there was a mystery that there that you wanted to offer your own solution to?
1: I I wanted to my my understanding of what really happened in reality bears no relation to what happens in the book, mm-hmm. you know, to put that out there. Yeah. Uh, I, I approached the plotting of this story. Um, quite in a mechanical way, almost like an engineer, I suppose. And, and one of the things that I like to do, and I'm hoping to do more of next year, is is actually um, workshops with other writers. And I call it engineering a twist because there is a, you know, there is a process to go through if you really want it to work. And you want to try and avoid the ex machina solution and you want to avoid having too many red herrings or too few. Um and I've studied twists for so many years myself in in other writers' fiction. I, I feel like I've got a good sense of which ones work for me and how they do. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I would say, I mean, I, yeah, look, in, in my, I'd say in my novel. By the time you get to the end, there's, I think there've been like five or six twists, and I, I did that very deliberately as well. But I, I can't say that it was necessarily part of my process in trying to discover the reality within the real William Jackson Crawford. It it was just that I felt. I felt this is either a this is either a story I tell in a very kind of soft and um, ambiguous way, and it's much more about atmosphere and much less about plot, or I just need to write a really zipping plot. And for me, the latter just felt more enticing. My next novel is is probably going to be less actually about plot devices and, and more about world building.
0: Is that also going to be in the realm of of dark things or?
1: It's going to have a a similar tonality to it because that's just how I write. Um, But it's not going to be a ghost story and it's not going to be Gothic. It's going to be historical and it's going to be based on a true story that is tragic. Um, And, you know, because that really is that that's where I think I need to move on to next. I don't I don't want to build a writing career where. You know, 10 years down the line, people are saying, what's your next ghost story? I will still write ghost stories, but I just feel like really for me, my motivation for writing this novel was this extraordinary relationship between these two historical figures and just trying to tell it in the right way. And it came out as it did.
0: Well, excellent. I mean, we'll finish off then with a, a question that I think in some ways could stand for all, because... I'm not going to ask you if you believe in ghosts. I mean, it's a dull question, I imagine, at this point in your in your touring. Instead, I'd like to kind of ex- explode or explore one final quote from your book, which I thought was beautiful. I, I highlighted the minute I saw it. I think it's just a lovely sentence in, in, in every way. Quite late on, William says, In reality, that is what it means to be haunted ghosts are mere memories of lives past granted a reassuring afterlife manifested by the pleading grasping fearful imagination of our own mortality where does that come from is is that from his character or is that from your own beliefs aj
1: that oh that comes from the fact that i'm just terrified of death i'm terrified of my death i'm terrified of the death of people i love um and mortality and fear of mortality is a huge part of, of my day-to-day life. Um, and I I find it very difficult as an atheist uh, to try and come to terms with the fact that when my heart stops beating, I'm gone. And the same for, for people I've lost, you know, who I, who I love very much and will lose, who I love very much. And I... Uh, I often say I don't believe in ghosts, but I would genuinely love to see one. You're not really meant to want to see a ghost. I are meant to be horrific experiences, but I, I actually believe if I saw a ghost tonight, I would be a much happier man tomorrow because it would answer so many of the fears that I hold. Um, and so that line is, is very much written through William, but it, it comes, it, you know, it also comes from the heart.
0: Okay. I, I've said enough times on this podcast my thoughts on that issue, which are are, are very similar to yours. To be honest, um, that the, the way you phrased it kind of perfectly articulated. I think why most of us believe in in the beyond, and and yeah, and if I could see my granddad tonight, it, as long as he doesn't make me jump, it'd be great. You know,
1: yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, <clears throat> being alive is a uh a cruel and difficult experience and those moments when we find joy and happiness and true comfort must be held on to because much of life in my experience and you can see why I wrote a gothic novel now but much of life in my experience um, is quite frightening and unnerving and unsettling and uncertain and it doesn't end very nicely and that is a fearful frightening thing and why do we read about ghosts why do we like reading about murders why do we enjoy reading these books I think it is partly because it's a it's a way of it's a catharsis and it's a way of trying to connect with those feelings in a world that feels safer and doesn't feel so final as reality does and for me um to write it i i I don't mind saying i you know i found it quite emotional reading writing um passages like that because they were written at a time when i was thinking and feeling about people i loved and about my own life you know
0: yeah it hits in a very kind of profound way after the last 18 months we've all had so uh it was actually quite quite a good book to read in the wake of the last two years because it, it does play with a lot of emotions that I think people people have been struggling with and 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 a lot of uncertainty that people have been struggling with over the last 2 years it's it it's a, it's a, it's a, a quite weird off kilter funnel to engage I think with 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 our current yeah. experience you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at the same time, I, I do feel I I, I ought to <laughs> I ought to reassure your listeners that there's an awful lot of fun and comedy in the book as well and adventure. You know, it's there. Are, there are moments, of course, when it gets quite philosophical, and the book is ultimately about the afterlife and about a guy who ends up, you know, taking his own life. But I think there's also um, a lot in there about um, I don't know, just the kind of. I mean, you were very kind earlier when you described some of the characters as being grotesque and Dickensian, but I again, in real life, I think real people are. I just mm-hmm. you know i'm I never stop being amazed by the kaleidoscopic, myriad different ways people I meet can be funny and surprising and brilliant um and hilarious. Um, even the ones I don't like very much I can't help but kind of I end every day kind of thinking about the people I've met and I just think gosh you know life is hilarious and filled with the most extraordinary characters and aren't aren't human beings just amazing things and um, so that's you know I, I can't wait really to start working on the next novel and the next one and the next one and you know however long I've got to write books because there's just so many different people to write about
0: well, I mean, there's one line in this that made me literally laugh so hard on I nearly dropped the Kindle in the bath. It's when you describe Houdini as a uh, let me get this right, a paranormal denier and barrel enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, AJ, we'll finish you off by speaking about books that are a joy to read. Can you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? I would, uh, I would highly recommend actually that
1: people. what i did um at the beginning of my journey writing this story and and by a magician among the spirits by harry houdini because it's the most brilliant account of this extraordinary gentleman's travels around the world unmasking fake spiritual mediums but also explaining as a magician how they carried out these these tricks and these these various um different strange manifestations you know using various glow-in-the-dark powders and wires and magnets and you know heels off the back of boots that you can remove and sprung shoes and all sorts of things it it really is it really is fascinating and i was i was so immersed in this book that by the time i got to page about 169 and Enters, you know, enters Dr. Crawford here. You know, Dr. Crawford appears in Houdini's memoirs. Um, even before that point, I was just absolutely hooked.
0: Okay. And my last question, AJ, that I ask everyone what truly scares you? Social media.
1: Social media absolutely terrifies me. And I can say that as uh, someone who has been uh, cancelled in my own uh, life uh, briefly um by a particular wing of the American church um right <laughs> it did and it did have an impact on my my career but also you know being on reality television and before that being a journalist I I have gained so much via social media um not least my publisher my agent my husband half of my friends um various jobs in the past i have gained through social media directly and there's a tip there i suppose for aspiring published writers is mm-hmm. you know definitely follow agents and publishers and don't be afraid of uh interacting with them but at the same time what what social media giveth social media taketh away um and it just frightens me that you could literally spend an entire and there are examples of this in popular culture and other people can think of them for me but you can spend an entire lifetime fighting for a cause. And then on the back of one ill-judged tweet or statement or one thing you once said, or one misunderstanding even of something you've said, or even liking someone else's tweet, not realizing the context, your entire, your entire life and your entire reputation is torn to shreds. And for the rest of your life, you are quote problematic. Um, it it's, it strikes me that it, it's an an evil and monstrous power in modern life and if you're really going to write about contemporary horror um that you know that's where it is
0: could not agree more i mean i've had to use social media to, to basically create this podcast because how else do you do it you know but i i get more and more worried every day by it just because we're not supposed to have it. Like, we're supposed to live in villages and know about 150 people in our entire world, you know, and, and we're not ready for this level of hyper engagement, I, I don't think. I think it can only inevitably lead downhill in any kind of discourse. Um, I'm very lucky because my followers are just delightful people, and I've got this kind of very shut down, kind of book Twitter thing where the wider world barely penetrates. I go back occasionally to my personal Twitter and it's just a bin fire of people's <laughs> fury. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah I know. the feeling. Yeah, and I just, think, I just think it's an awful world where it's one thing to have a set of standards that whereby people can fall out of favour by doing the wrong thing. It's a very different thing, I think, to have a, a world in which it is not good enough to say sorry anymore. And to be sorry.
1: I mean, the difficulty is that you can cause a vast amount of of offense and damage, um, in a few characters in a tweet, but you simply can never ever manage the level of that destruction with an apology on social media. So that's why it's, that's why it's so dangerous. It doesn't matter how sincere you are really, you, how do you prove your sincerity? And, and I, um, you know, I do, I do, I do think that's frightening for a lot of people particularly younger people who are very busy right now being extremely forthright with their opinions on various different social media platforms. And we all change. We change how we see the world as we get older. And we, you know, uh, often our opinions are tempered as we have different experiences and we come to come to learn about the world around us and the people that we love and and uh yeah I just I just think it's yeah I think it's just really scary because I you put your finger on it there I don't think the human brain or human society was ready for it and and can possibly ever hope to be ready for it
0: well I mean that is a sober way to finish my last interview of the year (laughs) happy new year yeah (laughs) Indeed, yeah, yeah, the, the future's looking bright, guys. Um, no, honestly, AJ, listen, I, I hope I made it quite clear how much I've really, really enjoyed this book. I think if people tune in next week to my review of the last six months, they will not be surprised to find you, you riding high in that list as well. I, I, I really thought it was, it was something special. This book, particularly as a as a debut, um, and I wish you all the best with everything what you do next, but. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for taking the time to finally speak to me, despite my making it difficult. And um, Merry Christmas, etc. But mostly, thank you for talking. Scared. Oh, my absolute pleasure.
1: And um, no, thank you for thank you for enjoying the book. We don't have a huge marketing budget or anything. It's all about word of mouth. So you know, when someone enjoys the book and then tells someone else they've enjoyed it, that's that's basically what I'm relying on to try and maintain this uh, this author thing that I've chosen. So honestly, it, it just means the world to me that you you enjoyed it.
0: AJ was right to stress the fun of this novel we'd gone down a fairly sombre route at the end there and though this is a horror podcast that doesn't mean that a lightness of touch isn't all so welcome especially at this time of year fun, however, doesn't mean niceness or kindness or anything approaching joy The Spirit Engineer is nothing like that. In fact, it reads to me as a celebration of the worst parts of human nature. I think AJ may disagree. I think, having spent so long with William Crawford and having seen something of his own experiences mirrored in that character, AJ is more lenient, more forgiving of William's flaws. Whereas I'm delighted by the fact that the character is all flaw. That commitment to self-absorption and arrogance and self-loathing in a character is impressive and highly original. Like I said, he he made my favourite character of the year. And this is from me, a guy who has spent the last 12 months extolling the virtues of horror with heart and heroism. Well, if the spirit engineer has got a heart, it's bitter and black and riddled with sores. All of which would sound like a critical mauling in most contexts, but we know better... Don't we, dear listeners? We understand the delicious appeal of the vile and the vicious. The spirit engineer came right at the end of a long, exhausting year of reading for me. I've just um, heard myself call reading exhausting, and I imagined my granddad sitting up in his grave to roll his eyes. But yeah, you get what I mean. It, it was a late addition to the schedule at a time when all I was focused on was getting through to Christmas and a break. So it was a big surprise how much I enjoyed this book. I really do think it will appeal to anyone who likes either ghost stories, historical fiction, or dark comedy. And if you like all three, then you're in for a massive treat. It came out here in October in the UK, and though AJ said it wasn't available yet in the States, I've had a look on Amazon, aka The Enemy, and it does seem to be, and if you can get it, I would definitely recommend. I would also definitely recommend you check out AJ's website, ajwestauthor.com as there's just tons of information on the real people and the real events behind this story. It's a great archive that really does supplement the novel and I'll put that link in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this interview and if you haven't yet listened to episode 7 with Kate Summerscale, I'd say go back and check it out the points of convergence between the spirit engineer and her haunting of Alma Fielding are very strong. So, although that brings us to the end of another year of talking scared with authors, don't worry, I'll be here to entertain you right through to the end of this shit show of a year. Next week, I've got the second State of the Horror Nation with Sadie Hartman and Emily Hughes, and following that, I'll be sneaking in my personal Best of the Year retrospective just before the New Year's bells. Most weeks, I do a call-out for you guys to get in touch, and this time, I'd like you to tell me your own Favourite horror books of 2021. Don't tell me what you haven't liked. Worst of the year lists are for people who shouldn't be allowed books. Tell me what you've loved. You can contact me in a whole range of ways. There's Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at TalkScaredPod or email at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I do try and respond to all engagement right across the board. Give me a chance. And you can also support the show on Patreon. For just a few bucks or an annual membership if you really, really love me, brackets, and want a discount, <laughs> that gets you extra bonus episodes like the first instalment in my History of Horror mega episode with esteemed Professor Roger Luckhurst. That finally went live this week. You can follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talking scared all contributions are hugely welcome and a massive thanks to the latest subscriber, Alex Everett, who deserves the finest Christmas. And speaking of Christmas, this is the last episode before the big day, so whether you celebrate the holiday or not, I wish you the best week possible in these trying circumstances. If you're not able to see your family this year, if you're working in some capacity to keep the wheels on this plague bus turning, if you're feeling tired or ill or just plain fed up with it all, remember, better days are coming, and I'm sending a virtual cheers and a clink of glasses across the digital ether. All my love to all of you. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared, but also to be at peace. Merry Christmas, guys.